Um, okay, uh, so I had to ship my computer back to Third Mill, so I'm without technology. And one of the reasons I didn't buy another computer and I've used Third Mills is that when I go to my assignment, I get issued one. So, you know, I don't have to worry about buying one, so I didn't go out and buy another one. So you just have to listen to me talk this morning. But it's going to be dialogical, and, uh, which is the way I like to, to do it. And um, I thought for the last time that we were here, it's, it's come up a little bit in some of the conversations with you all, uh, some with your leadership. I thought we'd talk about uh, what the officers of the church are. Uh, what, is, what does Scripture tell us, and how do we in the Presbyterian tradition uh, understand how it is that the church ought to be overseen? How should it be governed? So um, what are the two offices that we typically talk about in Presbyterianism? Elders and deacons, right. And in the um, history of the church, and before we go to the Scripture, let's just look at the forms of government, the major ones that are out there. Can anybody name them? Has anybody know, done any research on this, of the kinds of church government that exist, we'll say, in the world? All right. First one, let's just kind of go from the highest or the most formal and authoritative to the lowest, okay? When we say high and low, it doesn't mean good, bad. You understand what I'm saying? When we talk about high church and low church, all right, you with me? Um, all right, first is what they call sacerdotalism. Uh, S-A-C-E-R dotalism. <laughs> okay? Uh, sacerdotalism. And what sacerdotalism, uh, where it finds itself typically is in the Roman Catholic Church. And what it says is that there is an unbroken succession of apostolic authority since the days of Peter. So when a pope is elected by, does anybody know who elects the pope? The College of Cardinals elect the Pope, okay? They light a fire, and when white smoke comes up, everybody knows in St. Peter's Square they've chosen a Pope. The Pope is Peter. Not literally in the flesh, but has the same authority that Peter did. And it is liturgical and sacerdotal, that is to say it's sacramental and it's sealed. In other words, that person is the vicar or the representation of apostleship in the world. Flowing down from that are different ordained positions. So you have cardinals and archbishops and bishops and deacons and all, all the way down. But um, in that particular tradition, the authority resides in a single individual. And that single individual speaks for God. You understand what I'm talking about? So when the Pope, they say, when the Pope speaks ex cathedra, ex cathedra means ex out of cathedra chair, it's Latin, ex cathedra from the chair, out of the chair, he speaks infallibly with respect to faith and morals. Now there's always been some trouble with that through the ages, and there's all kinds of Roman Catholic apologetics that deal with that. Uh, but nonetheless, that's what they believe. So in your, in your most high form of church government, it is overseen by a single individual who then bequeaths authority, ordains those who will have jurisdiction over local places and people. So it works itself all the way down into regions and all the way down to the local churches or the parish in, in those traditions. Following after that, the next highest is what we would be call kind of a quasi-sacerdotalism. And you find that among the United Methodists, the Episcopal Church, the Anglican Church, and the Lutheran Church. In those particular traditions, they believe that there is a succession of bishops, that there is an apostolic authority, but it's not in an individual. So they don't say that their church leadership is Peter in the same authority in the same way, and that whatever Peter says goes. What they say is that that particular person is the head of the church, and then working its way down that apostolic authority and that hierarchy is then conveyed to those who are below it. But, you know, it's a, it's a distinction with a very small difference. Do you see what I'm talking about? So like in the Lutheran church, you know Luther had no love for the Pope. Maybe it's really quite inappropriate, some of the things he said about the Pope. Um, they're funny if you want to go read them, read Table Talk and some things like that, but I can't say it in mixed company. But he had um, no great love for the Pope, and he did not believe that the church should be governed that way, but he did believe in bishops. He did believe that there should be singular individuals who bear specific authority over areas of the church. And then there's derivation of authority after that. Third form of government, 
is what we'll call Presbyterianism. Where do we get that from? Anybody want to shine? Where does the word Presbyterian come from? What does presbyter mean? When Paul tells Timothy not to neglect the gift that was confirmed in him by the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Collection of elders. Collection of elders. Presbyter is an elder. That's what the Greek word means. Presbyteros means elder. So elders oversee the church, and then they, having governing authority, do not reside in any one individual, but they rule in parity. And distinguished among the eldership are two kinds of elders. What are they? Ruling and teaching. We're going to go to Scripture here in a minute, so I'm just kind of throwing this out as a, you know... That's the three office to you, right? Not yet. We're almost there. I'm going to talk about the northern and southern split. Yeah. Um, But you have teaching elders who are pastors and administer the sacraments or are given the authority by the presbytery to uh, do that, and then you have ruling elders. In Presbyterianism, the collection of elders or the gathering of elders or the session of elders, however you want to call it, works in courts of gradation. So you have a general assembly, which is where the body of elders go to make their annual considerations of matters of of the church. And the decisions there are supposed to flow then to the presbyteries, and then there's a lot of back and forth because sometimes presbyteries will adopt it, sometimes they won't, but eventually they work all that out. Presbyteries are over a region, and then down to the local session of a church. Now, in Presbyterianism in our country, there was a huge dispute in the 19th century between between two very well-known theologians that I'm sure you've heard of. One was Charles Hodge, and the other was James Henley Thornwell. Hodge said that in the church, the local church, there is not two offices but three. And while the elder, the pastor, is considered a distinct office from the other elders, no greater authority lies in that elder. Okay? They're still in parity. There's no greater authority in that elder, but they are distinguished from the ruling elders. There is a separation there. It is a three-office. It's not a some some churches I've heard them use the word bishop or overseer, but That's typically not the way it works. Thornwell said, no, an elder is an elder is an elder, and some of them devote themselves to teaching and the ministry of the Word, and others don't. So there's really no distinction between them. The three-office view does make a very hard and fast distinction, but not in terms of governing authority. So in churches, like I'm in the EPC, we are a three-office church. So is the PCUSA. The PCA is a two-office church. All right, PCA follows the Thornwellian tradition. It's a Southern Presbyterian Church, whereas the PCUSA, the United Presbyterian Church, the EPC, others were not formed in the South, and they tended to follow more the traditional or the historic Presbyterian form of government. So um, it's kind of a distinction without a difference, but um, the the important thing to remember there, and I'll come back to this in just a second when we look at the Scriptures, is that um, there has to be some kind of distinction between pastors or teaching elders and ruling elders. Not in terms of authority, but in terms of function. Are you with me? Okay, all right. Then the lowest form of church authority would be what? Low church. Congregationalism. You find this in your charismatic churches, your independent churches, Baptist churches. uh, Congregational in the sense that everything is determined and governed by the congregation as a whole. See, you elect elders to do the work of the church and to be authorities over the church. Okay? They don't appoint themselves. You appoint them. You ordain them, as it were. You elect them to that position. Whereas in the Baptist church, there's no decision made without a congregational meeting. Now, there will be a board of deacons, which in most traditions kind of function like a session or an eldership, and they will do anything pretty much in the church they're given permission to do except spend money. Then it goes to the congregation. Okay? That... And, Budgets all approved by the congregation and everything else. So there's no distinction between the congregation in that tradition and the pastor or the deacons in terms of their authority in the church. That's why typically in those traditions, in low church traditions, they'll refer to the pastor as brother so-and-so. You know what I'm talking about? 
Don't ever call me Brother Marty. Please. I hate that. Um, and it's not because I think I'm any more or any better. It's because the Bible, I don't think, teaches that. You know, brother, sister, so-and-so. But they do that because it's all to identify we're all basically the same here uh, in terms of, of leadership and authority. Now, we're not going to camp out on the other three, but we're going to talk about Presbyterianism this morning. and Where did it come from? And the first place I want you to look is at Exodus 18. So where do we get the form of government that we believe the Bible teaches? Why do you practice what you do here at Emmanuel? Well, so where did offices come from? Well, essentially, offices outside of, and we have to distinguish at this time, what will become the work of the Levites, who took care of what? tabernacle on the temple, right? Nobody else could. That's why they didn't get any land when it was portioned out, because their responsibility was to take care of the oracles of God for the sacrifices and the feasts and everything else. That was their job. They were set apart and consecrated to that as a tribe. And God ordained it to be that way. But we know that that does not continue through the New Testament. It does in a spiritual sense, and I'll come back to that in a minute, but not in the sense of a particular tribe being appointed. But what you see very early on before this distinction is put forth is a very pragmatic way of how officership developed. And if you look in uh, Exodus 18, it's the story of Jethro, who's Zipporah's father, right? This is Moses' father-in-law. And uh, go back to, um, uh, go to chapter 18, verse 13. The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I will make, uh, I will make them know the statutes of, of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy, and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. All right, you see what's going on here? Can you imagine how many people Moses was dealing with at that time? I mean, it puts you in the nut house. And so his father-in-law sees this and goes, it's not good. You're trying to do this all by yourself. Look, Moses, you need to focus. You're God's leader. You're the one he's chosen to deliver them out of this slavery and to take them to these places. And God's working and speaking through you to the people you need to raise up others who can judge these things all the way down. Okay, you see the gradation there? And I don't think there was like one particular, particular group of like 70 elders or something like that that then dealt with all the people. I think there probably was a group that was closest to Moses, like those that went up on the mountain with him. You don't think he dragged 100,000 men up there on the mountain, do you? Probably not. But there were those who were closest to him, and then they had a group of people they were in charge of, and so on and so on. Make sense? I mean, it's just a very practical, very pragmatic kind of thing. Well, this sets, in God's providence, this sets a tone or a pattern of how it is that not only the people of God in the Old Covenant, but also in the New Covenant, are going to be cared for and shepherded. Because that's what this is all about. You notice right there, he says, those who will not take a bribe. You think there was a problem with bribery? Yeah. Okay. You know, how are you going to judge? Well, you know, there might be a hundred shekels in my wallet. There might not be. Will you hold it for me? You know, that's the sort of stuff that would go on. So they had to be men who were above reproach. Sound familiar? Okay, so let's flip over to the New Testament. Go to 1 Timothy. We're going to look at chapter 3 here in a minute because... You don't see in the ministry of Jesus specifically this sort of leadership being identified. We know that it existed. 
What did Jesus do initially in terms of leadership? Whom did he call? Apostles. He called 12 apostles to be there to work closely with him in bringing the ministry to the people, right? So you're going to see some of this in the Sermon on the Mount. There's probably um, some people who are there listening to where there are other caregivers who are taking care of things. But we have no specific mention of it. We just know about the apostles themselves. So what we have to look to then is when the church is established, after Jesus is resurrected and is seated at the right hand of God, what is it in perpetuity that's supposed to take place? How is it in his absence is the church to be governed or overseen? And the first place that you see this is when church planning starts taking place in a more formal or instructional sense between Paul and Timothy. So look at 1 Timothy 3. What is Timothy doing? He is Paul's true son in the faith, right? He's going to be the one after Paul to carry this legacy. And he's not the only one. We know that Paul had other people who were disciples of his. But Timothy has a special place to be sure. And he has a very, a very serious and sincere affection for Timothy. But um, what is it? I mentioned this before. We'll see if y'all were awake. What is Timothy never called? He never called an apostle. That's going to be key, y'all. All right? hang, hang on to that. But what does he say to Timothy? Verse 1. This, the saying is trustworthy. Anyone aspires to the office of overseer or bishop. Okay, the Greek word there is episkopos. It's where you get episcopalian from. It means bishop. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert. He may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and to the snare of the devil. Oh my goodness. Wow. I mean, um, I don't meet these <laughs> in, in their fullness. And guess what? No other does. These are not things that are to be uh, absolutely 110% all the time present individual. These need to be the aspirations of a person because nobody's perfect in all of these things. And people are going to be tempted by sin. But these are the things that they aspire to and they seek to model and it's obvious. And so the congregation recognizes that and the congregation places them in nomination to be an elder or bishop, overseer. In Presbyterianism, it's all the same. We don't draw a distinction. And there's a reason for that. We'll see it when we look at Titus in just a second. But um, what do you think about those qualifications? Does it make your knees buckle a little bit? It ought to. I mean, this is Paul saying, look, Timothy, when you set up these churches and you set up elders, these are the kinds of people they need to be. And that's why, uh, and I said in a sermon a while back, how important it is that uh, not only you understand what church leadership is, but that those who are in leadership understand what it is that they are doing. And shepherding is the essence of what leadership is all about. Leadership is not about authority, uh, per se. Leadership is about service. And we'll talk about deacons in a minute, too. But these are the kinds of qualities that are absolutely essential. A couple of things that I like to take note of here beyond the, the moral kinds of things um, is that uh, he has to uh, not be a recent convert. I've seen that. Uh, the first church that I was in, which I was not pastor, I was on staff at Second President Memphis, and a guy got elected as an elder at age 28, and he was happy to tell you that he was the youngest elder ever ordained in that church. And that's a problem. Okay? Somebody does that. Um, he wasn't a bad guy. It was just like a chip on his shoulder. And then be well thought of by outsiders. Why do you think it says that? Because you know what we tend to say? Well, who cares what they think? Paul says you should care. What do you think he's saying? Well, he's going to be considered to be representative of the church. The church is not isolated into itself. 
And whenever somebody looks at any organization, you all have investments, you're planning for retirement, I assume, and you have a financial advisor and there are corporations and there's leadership in that corporation and you want to know that they're not corrupt and doing all kinds of chicanery outside of that. You don't want to be associated with that sort of thing because it makes the company irreputable. Same thing with the church. If your leaders are not squared away, the opinion of the church will go down. I mean, just look at what's happened with TV preachers. Do I need to even expand on that? And the opinion that the public has of the church at large. You know, evangelical is now a wordy dirt. You know what a wordy dirt is, don't you? Okay? Evangelical is a good word, but evangelical is used in a derisive way in the culture. Now, some of that's not our faults because people don't like what we believe and all that. And some of it is because sometimes we're jerks. And they look to the leadership and how they lead the church as to whether or not they are the real deal or not. That's important. Okay, now before I go on a little bit further, I'm going to go ahead and um, address the... Well, now let's go over to Titus because he says the same thing. Slip over a couple of pages. Because Paul says the same thing to him. Verse 5, chapter 1. Paul says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For, if an, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers. And so it talks about you know, what that role has to be um, in terms of uh, overseeing the church, especially with respect to discipline. All right, so let's go ahead and throw out the 800-pound gorilla. What does it mean to be the husband of one wife? Faithful husband. Faithful husband. Okay. Not into polygamy. Not into polygamy, for sure. Um, kind of gives you a little trouble when you think about Solomon, doesn't it? Um, marriage is understood. We can't compare the two, but anyway. What else? What do you think about that? Can a divorced man be an elder? Depends on the circumstances probably. Okay, like what? Like if there was any covenant breaking involved in the previous marriage. You know, so if he not, was not the that he can't be forgiven, it's just that he could, you know, if, if his wife was unfaithful and it was like his wasn't his fault, then it's possibly, you know, in or but it's just it's, I mean the circumstances kind of you gotta take one on each individual basis, you know. What kind of what kind of covenant breaking was involved, that sort of thing, probably. Okay, let's make it even stickier. All right, so his wife was unfaithful and they got divorced and he marries another woman. Is he the husband of one wife still? He's wife number two. But God has joined together, let man, let not man separate, right? So this is real stuff in the church today, y'all. What do you do? What does it mean? You know, anytime you talk about marriage in Scripture, you're talking about, and I was trying to think through husband of one wife, but the relationship that God wants with his bride is a, a single relationship. There will be no other gods before me. It's we are the bride that, of Christ, not brides of Christ. It's in that realm somewhere, I think, is what you're talking about. It's a commitment of a single source. That's not a good word, but just what we do and what we live by, what we believe is just in God and Christ, and that's it. Yeah, well, you know, that, that relationship has been solemnified and then the covenant's broken. And let's just say that, you know, the man was the offended, not the offender, and he marries somebody else. Can he be an elder in the church? Yes. Okay, anybody disagree with that? Don't be afraid. Now, believe me, this issue goes round and round and round. My father-in-law, for example, is divorced and has been married to his second wife, same woman for, gosh, 40 years now. And in his church, he cannot be an elder for that reason. He is a godly man. I think he'd make a fine elder, but according to their constitution, he cannot because he's had more than one wife. 
Yeah. Um, I always think about uh, did God give Israel a divorce decree? Are you talking about writing a letter, a certificate of divorce? I'm sorry, in the Old Testament, it talks about God giving Israel a divorce decree for unfaithfulness. Oh, you're talking about in the great big sense. Like, yeah. Israel is divorced from God. Yeah, yeah it's what yeah, um, so. Hosea is all about. But, um, but now, I mean, coming down to the individual level, though, how would you appropriate that on the individual level for a person in the church? You see, this is, a, this is a big issue. And it goes round and round and round. There's not really a right or wrong answer here. I'll tell you what I think. But, um, and you may disagree, and that's fine. But, uh, you know, churches have really wrestled with this. And, I mean, what about, um, you know, a man who was unconverted, and he was the one who was unfaithful years ago. He came to Christ, and he's been married to the same one for all these years. Is he disqualified forever because of his previous sin? Was the kingdom taken away from David? Hmm. So these these are real real issues, and you have to work this you have to work this out, you know, to where your congregation. But I think that was the essential answer. Is that um, what what Paul is driving for is that, that he is a one woman man. He's a one woman man. Um, the the reason I have a problem with saying divorce is an automatic disqualifier, regardless of who offended or what, is because if that's true, if that's what Paul means here, then this is the only qualification that reaches into a man's history. Everything else are present tense qualifications. Not a lover of money, sober-minded, not quick-tempered, etc. Not was quick-tempered, used to be greedy. Uh, it, this would be the only one that goes all the way back. I think what Paul is addressing there is, you know, look, especially at this time, because the New Testament is an evangelistic document is they're going into the Roman Empire and there's all kinds of chicanery that's been going on and how are you going to build a church? I mean, you're going to find all these people who were faithful Jews who obeyed all the statutes and everything all the way through and never deviated from it in your missionary efforts? No, you couldn't even find that in Jerusalem. How are you going to find it in the Roman Empire? So what Paul is, I think, telling Timothy is you've you got to be cautious, of course. I mean, if somebody has you know, a checkered history, you got to be discerning about that sort of thing. I mean, they may be, you know, okay right now, but they've got this long history, even after they've converted, where it's kind of, you know, it's probably not the right person. But not to turn in and swallow camels, because really, if you made those things absolute, nobody could be an officer. Just saying. So I, that's what I think he's saying, is he's a one-woman man. He's demonstrated that. He's not young. Um... Does he have to be married? That's another question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, are we saying that a you know lifelong bachelor like Paul? Although Paul, before the Sanhedrin, apparently some argue that he had to have been married at some point. Yeah, I don't buy it. <laughs> I've heard that, but no, I don't buy it. Yeah. Sure he makes no sure reference. He certainly in thirteen letters he would have made some I'm reference. Not sure woman to look at Paul, frankly. Yeah, it wouldn't last you very long, would it? <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah, I think they can. Uh, I think again, these I think these are are somewhat general, important qualities that are being stated. Uh, it's kind of like when we start talking about, you know, the recipients of communion or whatever. You can die the death of a thousand qualifications. You start absolutizing, uh, discerning the body. You have to discern the body to take the Lord's Supper. Well, you know what that would do if you absolutize that in this church. There goes your paid communion. It's out the window because the little kids can't do that. They can barely follow the sermon. They grow into it. We believe that, right? So you have to be careful about absolutizing these things in the most ultimate sense and see these as statements of this is what you need to aspire to if the church is going to succeed. And that's the case with elders here. Now, one other thing. Um, let me just make sure. Any questions? Or... Yes. So when you were talking about your father-in-law you know, can't be because he's divorced, do those people also hold that kind of that realm? What if his wife had died? He remarries. You know, is that this on the same level, or do they say, well, you know, that wasn't something that they dissolved, obviously? Um, it depends. I know, uh, in fact, in our presbytery, in my presbytery, we have two teaching elders who do not believe that if a wife has died, that a man can remarry another. 
He has to remain single the rest of his life. What happens to the parable Jesus told about the seven, seven guys that died and the guy getting married? Which one was the true? Yeah. Who's he going to be married to in heaven? Nobody. I think that's what Jesus' point is. Is that, yeah, you're not, we don't carry marriage into glory. The Mormon church affirms that, right? Sealed marriages and all, but we don't. Um, yeah, so there, there are those who say, you know, if, if your wife has passed away, that's terrible and tragic, but that's the only one, you know, that you could ever do. And so it, it, that's also disputed. So it, it's sticky. Like I said, this is not easy to uh, do. And, be, you know, always have to be careful about oversimplifying. And in our tradition, in the Reformed tradition, we kind of tend to do that. We kind of proof text ourselves into oversimplification. And we need to be more thoughtful um, sometimes with the way we approach these things. Because I've seen this sort of stuff used as a, as a bat against somebody. And that's not Paul's point at all. And we should not try to read into Scripture what is not there. Inferring from Scripture something that was not intended. Amen. That's it. And also look at Scripture as a whole. You know, there weren't chapters and verses for a long time. You know, we broke that down and Ramus logic made us propositionalize it and all that. So you have to just be careful about camping out on one Scripture and making that absolute. There's a narrative that's going on and we have to look at the flow of biblical theology and not make it what we want to say, but try to understand what it in fact is saying. Um, all right, I also want to point this out. Uh, in Titus, again, uh, he says, look at verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete, that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then verse 7, for an overseer is God's steward. So elder and overseer are used interchangeably. Do you see that? Yes? See what I'm talking about? That's important because that's one of the principal reasons we say that elders are elders are elders. Some may be set apart to a particular purpose, but there's no distinction between a bishop and an elder because elders are called bishops and bishops are called elders. That's all I wanted to point out about that. Okay. The word elders typically They're not supposed to be youngish. They can be young, but not youngish. Um, you know, you just have to be discerning as to whether or not, you know, they have, in nominating somebody for eldership in the church, that they've demonstrated a level of maturity of their own where they can handle the mess that is a local church. You don't want to put somebody in there who, you know, just looks at it as an office to, you know, and gosh, that's our, one of our big problems. We need to make so-and-so an elder. I mean, he's the president of the bank. <laughs> I've seen it, y'all. I, I mean, I, I've had it said to me. People come in going, we need to make so-and-so an elder. We do. He only comes to church once a month. You want to make him an elder? Give me a break. In the, in the day with Paul and Timothy, Paul was the elder because he was a mature Christian. And he was training Timothy. Timothy was more the old seed because he, his character was of well, he's not in his teens here. Most people think Timothy's probably in his 30s by this time. So, you know, it's, this isn't him talking to an 18 year old, discipling him or anything like that. I'm not talking about his age as much. I'm talking about the reference to him and going out and having other people in place that were those of the character people that would would be that person that would represent the church and work into the growth of the maturity piece of, right. of Christianity. Right. All right, anything more on elders? Got to get to deacons. All right, go to Acts chapter 6. Very similar to Exodus 18, just different circumstances. So what was the reason that the eldership was originally established? What was Jethro's point? Moses, you need help. <laughs> All right? You need help. There's no way the people of God can be managed by one person. That's just not going to happen. Well, the church runs into that, that not even 12 can manage all of the people. So look at Acts chapter 6. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, those are the Greek uh, Jews, uh, arose among the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve, the apostles, summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. 
Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Okay, now let's make sure we understand what's being said there, because it almost sounds like we're too good to wait tables. Let's find somebody else who can do that menial task. It's not the point. What the elders are saying, the apostles who are elders, okay, that's what we see in Paul's transition to Timothy, right? The overseers. Apostles, just a very specific office ordained by Christ. We don't have those anymore. Um, is that they're overwhelmed and people are being neglected. And so the same thing essentially happens here. Choose seven men who are of good repute, who are servants, who can take care of the material and physical needs of those who need it so that nobody's neglected. The reason for that is because the apostles or the elders are primarily to devote themselves to the preaching, teaching, and oversight of the church spiritually. That's their job. We are living souls, correct? Being made in the image of God? Living souls. We are both material and immaterial. So there are immaterial dynamics to our lives that need to be cared for, our spiritual life, that's primarily the role of an elder. And then there are material needs that need to be addressed in our lives, and that's primarily the role of a deacon. They're not mutually exclusive. You start talking about practically in the life of the church. <laughs> when I first um, got to Westminster and Laurel, some of the deacons came to me, a couple of them, and they were complaining. They said, all we do is make coffee and lock doors. <laughs> you know, and that's a problem. And what I saw very quickly is that the elder, uh, the session of that church, one, it was way too big. I had nine elders there in church, a couple hundred people. You don't need nine elders for that. But, uh, but they micromanaged everything, everything. And then if they needed, you know, somebody to fire up the grill and make hamburgers for a cookout or something, they'd get the deacons to go buy the food and go do it. No, that's not the point. Elders can sweep floors. Elders can put out chairs. Elders can prepare food. That's all fine and good. The point is that the physical needs of the church, such as they manifest themselves, especially to the ministry of widows and orphans, are the downtrodden or the needy. You know, Paul makes a big deal about that. We, we've kind of forgotten about how important that is, that they not be neglected. And the eldership can't extend itself all into that as well as providing the spiritual oversight of the church. There needs to be a body with its own authority that takes care of those things. And so what I did at Westminster, it took me almost 10 years to do it, is that the deacons all of a sudden became the ones to manage the budget. That was hard. Because <laughs> uh, we did have a couple of CPAs who were elders and they just didn't. And I was like, no, I mean, why are you messing with the money of the church? This is my opinion. I'm not saying this is what you should do. And I'm like, you're prayer and ministry of the work. Why are you worried about how we spend the money? So you're part of approving the budget. I get that. But let the deacons go do the ministry of the church. So they did. And they were a lot more effective in getting things done. Because they didn't have to always come to the session once a month to get permission which then would get tabled to the next month while somebody had to pray about it, and eventually it never gets done. You see my point? That's what this is all about. Make it happen. Jean-Luc Picard would say, make it so. If y'all know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I'm a nerd. Okay, so go back to 1 Timothy 3. So in perpetuity then, as the diaconate is established, so qualifications themselves as the church has worked its way into the Roman Empire and it's being established, it's expected that there will not just be elders, but deacons also. That's the expectation that there would be. Deacons, verse 8, likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and they let them also be tested first. Then they... Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons be, each be the husband of one wife, managing their children their own households well. For those who serve well as a deacon, gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Any differences between there you see and between elders and deacons? Why the overlap? Titus didn't talk about deacons, so we can't flip over there. This is pretty much the only place that you see the qualifications listed, except for the allusion there in the book of Acts. So what do you see is different? Teaching is not in the deacons. Okay, that's an important one, all right? So what is the role of an elder? Prayer and ministry of the Word. So the authority, the teaching authority of the church is in the eldership. 
Okay? That's why elders have to not only understand, agree with, but must be able to articulate the doctrine of the church. Now, they may not be, you know, again, you have teaching elders to go to seminary and do all that, you know, stuff that we learn over there, and that's to what we're called. I know many ruling elders that are very well learned, and they've studied quite a bit, but sometimes, you know, say, look, you need to talk to the pastor about that. But an elder should be able to, in principle, articulate the important things of what the church is and what we believe and understand it. Now, how's that different from deacons? Deacons are not required to teach. Does that mean deacons can't teach? No. Of course they can. You don't have to be an officer in the church to teach. As long as the elders, the oversight, the teaching authority of the church has approved it, that's fine. It just says they are not required to do that. Why? Because that's the job of the elders. Do you see what I'm talking about in terms of how the church ought to function and the importance of having those distinct roles? We start melding it all into one big blob where it's just kind of like one gets this task and that task. It, it doesn't accomplish anything. It's just chaos. They are independent bodies of one another in terms of their function. Yes, deacons fall under the authority of the session. There's no question about that because that's ultimately the responsibility of the eldership. But they should be free to do what they need to do. But don't require them to do things they're not called to do. <clears throat> they want to teach fine, but don't say, well, you're, you know, you're a leader in the church, so you ought to teach Sunday school class. If you're saying that to a deacon, you're incorrect. If they want to do that, that's fine. But if they don't, that's not their job as a deacon. I have a question. Yes. <clears throat> when, when the deacons took over after 10 years of, of your efforts to get them to take care of the budget, yeah. did the elders still have to approve the budget? Yeah, they had to approve the budget. Yeah, but it was... We didn't want the elders spending valuable time together when they should be in prayer and considering the ministry needs of the church to be arguing over this line item in the budget. Let that be hammered out by those who see the material needs of the church hands-on about power bills and you know what's to go to missions and all of a sudden to work those things out and let the elders function. It's just a distribution of, a, of responsibility. Is what it is, so that you can both excel in what you do. But typically what happens, um, and it's been true in every church I've been in, even the one I planted ended up this way and we had to work that out, uh, is that we have an idea that, um, and even the book of order, you know, our book of order in the EPC, the PCA, the OPC, they're all the same. You, when you uh, have a church, you're required to have a session which requires two ruling elders and one teaching elder or for you to be a particularized church according to our Constitution. You do not have to have a diaconate. And I think that's unfortunate <laughs> that you don't have to have one in order to be a constituted church because I think you're going to just run into all kinds of issues of elders getting into things that they really shouldn't be worried about. There's plenty of other things to deal with. The spiritual welfare of God's people. Is everybody in here, are, there, are your lives just going perfectly smoothly so you don't need the ministry of the church and you know all you have to do is how you spend the money? I mean, give me a break. So that's, that's, you know, the pastor can't do it alone. You know, Scottish Presbyterianism, you know who visited the widows and went to the hospitals and everything? The ruling elders did. They told the pastor to stay and study in the church so they wouldn't err in doctrine. Didn't mean the pastor didn't go from time to time, but now the responsibility has shifted to where an awful lot falls onto a pastor. And in my experience, um, unfortunately, sometimes all elders are is they show up once a month to argue. It should never be that way. Yeah? You know, the pastor's a paid position as elder in the history of the church. Has a ruling elder ever been a paid position? Uh, well, yeah, not as a ruling elder per se. But uh, like administrators, some of these bigger churches might have a ruling elder who ran a company for 40 years. That, Like at Second Pres, John Adamson, who hired me out of seminary, was a ruling elder. But he wasn't hired as a ruling elder. He was hired as an administrator. But it was because he had been an elder and you know, they knew him that they were comfortable making that. But no, you don't hire a ruling elder. It, it, we went back to chapter 2. We really don't have a whole lot of time to do it. But you see the distinction there of the elders who are worthy of double honor, who devote themselves to preaching and teaching the Word. And that's where the distinction between teaching and ruling elder tends to come down. Um, 
in the way that we understand it. But the, the pastor uh, of the church is like the Levite. That they devote themselves to the work of the church exclusively. And that's why they're remunerated. I think, I do think the ruling elder, the teaching elder has, I mean, the way it breaks out. I know you have, they have the same authority as a ruling elder, but matters of doctrine, in my opinion, they, because they were typically trained as, in seminary, they have more authority, I mean, it's, it's kind of the unspoken authority, so to speak, of, over matters of doctrine in certain their opinion carries more weight, certainly. Like your opinion would carry more weight than my opinion, because you've been seminary and you've studied. So in a matter of doctrine. So in the church, it kind of breaks out that way, I've, in my experience. Like the rule, you know, when it comes to matters, certain matters of doctrine. Not to say that the other elders can't, but and when we read the when I read the early church fathers, they're always um, you know, talking about the bishop and remember the bishop and heed the word of the bishop. Which you were yeah. Like you can authority. Some, yeah, and so, but what I'm, I don't know what I think about. It. I guess I'm just kind of talking. How you work that out? I mean, it seems to me there there's like a free office type thing. Kind of. You know how all uh, of the mainline denominations went liberal? <laughs> how? Seriously. It was the pastors yeah. and the seminaries who had no accountability. So what I think should happen on session, this is me, and I'm a three office person, I think there is a distinction that needs to be clear, is there should be a deference to the pastor. In other words, you know, I don't think it's the business of a ruling elder to always be challenging the pastor on theological instruction, okay? Especially if they haven't been to seminary, have no formal training. But what if something's cattywampus? Did you know what he said this morning? You know, and the elder, so you hold them to account. And uh, so that's always been one of the big problems uh, in these church traditions of where they just go off into the wild blue yonder is there is just nobody to reel them in. So the eggheads got together and before you knew it, you know, and so they were running chess what they were preaching. So I think that that accountability is essential. That actually is what pushed me over the line to be a Presbyterian from a Congregationalist. For a call, I read somewhere in the Scottish tradition, the elders would sit on the front row and listen to the... They sat and faced the congregation. And then, if they, and then to approve of his sermon, basically, feel like, like, you know, they would, like it was a, some kind of thing they did, but he stood up or something, or reading somewhere. But they basically approved of the stand up and say that what you, what you, everything you preached today was, was solid, and we, you know, concur, so to speak. And, as an approval. Yeah. If you go this day, and you've been to Savannah, Georgia, okay, if you go to Savannah, you know, 13th Colony, a lot of history there, it's a beautiful city, but if you go to Independent Presbyterian Church down there, uh, which was founded before we were a nation by the Free Church of Scotland, the pulpit's about 15 feet in the air, okay, the elevation of the Word of God, okay, remember when I was talking about theology of architecture and all that, okay, the elevated Word, underneath the high pulpit, are chairs that face the congregation. Guess who used to sit in those? The elders. And they watched you. <laughs> and worship. See, if you were listening and not messing around and not on your iPhone <laughs> back then. But um, and they would listen to the sermon. Uh, we don't do that anymore, it'd be kind of weird, wouldn't it? Although, you know, if, you, if you've been, like, I've been to some of these, you know, really large <coughs> congregational churches, it's not uncommon to have a whole bunch of people sitting out there behind a preacher. Now, it's not the job to check you out, but it is kind of odd sometimes to have people watching you want to worship, but that, that's what they did. And that was their responsibility. So, yeah, if you ever go there, it's really neat, because, you know, we talk about historic Presbyterianism in this country. That's one of the oldest churches on this continent. I was always interesting and maybe not this point is how you know plurality of plurality of elders is kind of the way American government shakes out to you a little bit. Like, it's a Republican form of government right, representative. I mean, I know, I know it's you know, like America, early America, I mean the way we have representative government is very reflective of sort of a biblical sort of government. So, you know what I mean? Well what's going on in Israel? 
Israel's not just a worshiping people, it's a body politic. What is the issue that Jethro brings up? It has to do with legal disputes. So yeah, you have definitely a lot of overlap there, but we have separated that out you know, in this country to be sure. Um, other stuff. Yeah. You, and I don't think you mentioned she said um, when they, you were talking about authority of another elder over the teaching elder, especially if he'd been to seminary. I mean, thank goodness some people don't go to I mean, I don't have a lot of confidence necessarily that if you go to seminary, you're qualified to be the preacher. I wouldn't, cons I mean, I don't, it's nice to have that formal teaching, but I wouldn't think. I wouldn't have a problem calling a pastor that had not gone to seminary. It depends would, on the faith tradition. Yeah, I guess it depends on the tribe. I have a, I have a former chaplain assistant who pastors a Baptist church here in Mississippi, yeah. and he didn't finish college. You know, but he yeah. loves the Lord, yeah. and he preaches the Word. I'm not saying I shouldn't know a lot, but I, I, are you thinking that the elders should, not the ruling elders should, um, not necessarily being beaten up on the teaching elder all the time every sermon, but I mean, certainly there is some tension there that we, they need to kind of have a conversation if they don't think they're on track, I would think. Yeah, I, I, if I didn't say that, yeah, I, I do believe that. Yeah, I, I do believe that um, I think there should be a deference to the pastor. You know, you shouldn't be, you know, scrutinizing all of his sermons down to your own idiosyncrasies, okay? But if something doesn't really quite sound right, then yeah, yeah. you know, sit, sit down and say, you know, help us understand what you were preaching last Sunday because it, it didn't sit right. Yeah, you got to have that accountability. Yeah. So yeah, I agree. Asking for a friend, uh, should the deacon be required to do like a, a prayer in the church service? You're asking for a friend. Yeah. <laughs> I have a friend. Uh, I think it's fine. I don't. I don't have any problem with lay people participating in worship except preaching the word or administering the sacraments. And I don't think you just put anybody up front either. You know, they have some credibility because, you know, if they're leading singing or reading a scripture, I mean, there's some authority implied there. But it should all be done under the supervision and approval of the session. The session determines the service of worship. What? There's no requirement. Requirement? No. No. Or for ruling elders, for that matter. I mean, some ruling elders are better than others at public speaking, right? I mean, you, you're, the, the beauty of a session is that you're trying to see a collection of gifts, not all the same people. You see what I mean? You want there to be some diversity. That enriches the, you know, some people see other things others don't. But, um, you know, you should, uh, you know, measure out the gifts and see, you know, where, where they lean, to be sure, when it comes to leading worship and such, yeah. What do you think in verse 11? Where? When he's talking about the deacons in 1 Timothy 3, 11, he goes on to elaborate on about their wives. Why does he not say I almost that? got away from Why does he not <laughs> say about the, the wives of the elders? But then... You're going to get me in trouble. Uh, no, I'm kidding. All right, yeah, that's something else. Why does he talk about wives there and didn't talk about wives of elders? Why do you think? What do you think? Maybe it's because of the service-oriented position of the deacons and the wife of the deacon is expected to assist in that versus the teaching-oriented position of the elder. I think that could be a way of understanding it. Um, they like done more. He was also writing a specific church, so they could have been a specific problem or a more. He could be he could have been answering more specific questions than we don't have to. You think in Ephesus there was a problem? Maybe. I mean, I'm just saying it's like... These Some people are, say that. Um, I think that uh, it probably has more to do with... You know, elder literally means older. And there were probably widowers who were elders. But that was probably not the case with deacons. Deacons were younger. And they probably still had little kids at home and they had a wife and all that. I think there's just kind of a general understanding there that the deacons need to be careful too about how their wives relate to the church more so than an elder needs because not all the elders did elders tended to be older a lot older we've gotten younger over time but you know and old then you know would have been in their 40s 
So, you know, longevity in life was, you know, survivability is very different. Uh, some have said that that's an argument for deaconesses. That, that reference there is that the wife of a deacon can be a deaconess in the church. Romans 16 alludes to a deaconess, literally in Greek, named Phoebe. But deacon, diakonos, literally in Greek, just means servant. <coughs> so it's like apostle. Am I an apostle? Yes, I am. <coughs> I'm sent by God. That's apostello's verb, means to be sent. One who's sent. All right? Am I an apostle with a capital A? No. All right, so you, that, I think that's where it kind of goes down. But I think there's a lot of practicality there. That's why I said you have to read the narrative as a whole. And Ephesus was a mess. It really was. Um, you make the apostle thing, although the Roman Catholics would say they can make the apostles. And they point to yeah. uh, Acts 1 when they replaced Jesus. That's what the Pope is, an apostle. They, they laid hands on Matthias and made him... So that, yeah, they think that from that they can do that. That's apostolic succession in the physical sense. We believe in the spirit of apostolic succession that the word of the apostles is proclaimed authoritatively. That's different from saying, I speak with authority right. for God. I do when I'm preaching God's word. Other than that, no. Okay? Does the Orthodox Church, they're kind of in between... Lutheran and Catholic, right? I mean, they don't. They, I think they believe that the, the church in Constantinople, like, they can trace that lineage back to Peter or something. Or like, I don't know. Well, they would. Are they sacerdotal? We need to go, or you got a minute? It's still a prelacy, right? It is prelacy. It's sacerdotalism. All right. Um, let me just say this real quick because I know we're out of time. Um, how we immediately after the last apostle is John, right? probably lives into the 90s of the first century. Immediately following him, you have a series uh, almost immediately of bishops who are set up. And there's a practical reason for that, and that was to safeguard the doctrine so that it wouldn't get so diluted among the multiplicity of people. But they had different centers of leadership. So you had a bishop of Antioch, you had a bishop of Carthage, you had a bishop of Constantinople, you had a bishop of Rome, you had a bishop of Alexandria. Alexandria and Antioch were bitter rivals. Okay, so you had all kinds of competition. Of course, Rome is going to be the one that lasts the longest because all of North Africa and most of the East is going to be slammed by whom? About the year 900, by the year 900. Well, the Muslims. Okay, North Africa used to be Christian. You know that, right? That's where Augustine's from. So, um, you, you have those different leadership positions of various churches. I would say that I think orthodoxy represents it more closely than Roman Catholicism because what Rome argued is they were kind of last man standing. Um, they're, they're, it's going to be the Visigoths, you know, Honorius is going to have the Visigoths coming over the seventh hill that's going to sack Rome in 410. A.D., or start the fall of the Roman Empire. But the others were gone, by and large. Constantinople is still kind of there, but it's going to follow the Muslims in a couple hundred years after that. Uh, if you look, and I'll finish with this, if you go to Revelation 2 and 3, when Jesus is talking to the seven churches, you know, there's seven literal cities in Asia Minor. You can go there today. I've been to all of them. There are actual ruins there of the seven churches. Um, Jesus... <coughs> moves among the lampstands. It's not a candelabra. You with me? Okay. If it were a candelabra, they're all connected. But Jesus moves among, his spirit moves among the lampstands, which means they're separate. And he tells particular churches what they need to be doing. And if they don't, what's he going to take away? Their lampstands. Okay. So I think that orthodoxy comes closer to that. Um, but I'm still working some of that out. I can give you a definitive answer on where I think that all comes down. But I think there's something to be said for the church. While it is one in Christ, who is the head of the church, that its manifestation in the world has different, um, different places of authority and leadership. I just don't know how that works itself out today, especially after the Reformation. 
we're all over the place now. So anyway, okay, we gotta go. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, you're the king of all, and you have enthroned Jesus to rule and reign in the kingdom now. We know that He is our sovereign covenant Lord, for whom all authority is given. And we pray that as we have derivation of that through your word, that we would see it as best we understand through diligence and study of how we should look at leadership in the church, how we ought to um, elect and appoint uh, people into positions of uh, leadership as elders and deacons. And we pray that, um, and I pray for this particular church, that you will guide them into all wisdom to have good and godly leadership um, as they go forward in ministry. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.